Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll speak with Juan Pablo Scarfi, the author of The Hidden History of International Law in the Americas, Empires and Legal Networks, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. In his book, Dr. Scarfi shows the central role of a coterie of elite Latin American jurists and intellectuals in constructing a Pan-American inflected conception of international law. In exploring the rise of so-called American international law, Scarfi's monograph contributes to a now burgeoning literature on the rise of global governance by showing how many of the legal ideas that came to serve as the foundation of organizations like the United Nations were first experimented with in Latin America. While much of the previous work on international law during the 20th century has often left Latin America out of the picture or given it a peripheral role, This important monograph positions Latin America at the center of the development of modern ideas about international law and highlights the global legal networks that allowed for spirited exchanges between Latin American, North American, and European legal elites. In the conversation that follows, I'll talk to Dr. Scarfi for about 50 minutes about a number of aspects of his book. I'm here with uh, Dr. Scarfi uh, to talk about his book, The Hidden History of International Law in the Americas, Empires and Legal Networks. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Scarfi. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation, Stephen. I thought, um, as is customary here on the New Books Network, we'd like to start with a question about your background as a scholar and your training and how that kind of influenced uh, the topics that the topic that you chose to research or, or any other kind of information that you think would be helpful in having us get a sense of your kind of intellectual genealogy. Um. Okay, sure. Um, I studied political science uh, as an undergrad and, and, and did my master's in history in Argentina at Torquato di Tela University and completed my PhD at the University of Cambridge in the UK in politics and international studies. But my thesis had a strong historical uh, focus on intellectual and international history. I have been always interested in, uh, in the history of political thought, in political thought and intellectual history, uh, and the Cambridge School of Political Thought. Uh, and I have been always interested in interdisciplinary research in history, political theory, and law, and especially the connections between history and theory. I had a, a long experience teaching uh, history of political thought in Argentina, but also in Cambridge. And uh, my master's dissertation was my first contribution to, to, to the topic of, of the hidden history of international law in the Americas. Uh, in my master's dissertation, I focus essentially on, the, on, on James Brown Scott, a jurist, important uh, a United States jurist and legal advisor of the U.S. Department, and uh, the dissemination of uh, U.S. international law in Latin America. My master's thesis was published as a, as a book. This was my first book, was published uh, in 2014, uh, by Fondo de Cultura Económica, titled El Imperio de la Ley, James Ron Scott y la Construcción de un Orden Jurídico Interamericano. As I, as I mentioned, uh, uh, this background in, in political theory and political thought was a central tool for my master's and doctoral research on the history of international law and the history of U.S.-Latin American relations. When I arrived, uh, arrived to, uh, to Cambridge, 
I had a well, very well-structured doctoral project and a strong background on, on recent scholarship in the history of international law and empire and the history of U.S.-Latin American relations. Um, Cambridge, uh, the University of Cambridge, proved to be a, a very uh, suitable environment to do interdisciplinary research in the history of international law, political thought, the history of international relations, U.S. and Latin American history. And, and especially, uh, I find the uh, I find it a suitable environment, the Department of Politics and International Studies, the Center of Latin American Studies, and and the History Faculty. Uh, and um, I, I, then I became I came across the work of many new scholars, and also uh, enhanced my knowledge on on the Cambridge School and, and the history of political thought, global history, the English School of International Relations. Important debates that my book covers on liber- the, the, the relationship between liberalism and empire, and, and the U.S. and Latin American history, of course. While I was at Cambridge, of course, I did a, I covered research on, on 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 the American Institute of International Law, a central subject of the book, and and I spent uh, three months in 2011 at Columbia University as a visiting scholar conducting research at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Archives and had the chance to meet uh, several scholars uh, in these fields uh, when I was uh, there doing uh, archival research. I, I think uh, this is a good overview of my of my trajectory. Yeah, thank you. That's great. I mean, I think that, and hopefully we talk about this more later, but I mean, your interdisciplinary background, I think, really comes across in the book, the way you're able to weave together um, legal history, um, intellectual history to an extent, um, international relations. I mean, I think it's one of the, one of my favorite parts of the book is the way it's able to move between those different uh, domains. But I thought first we would start uh, with a kind of more basic um, and, but important concept or idea that underpins uh, your book, which is uh, Pan-Americanism. A lot of listeners might be familiar with Pan-Americanism, but for those who aren't, I was wondering if you could kind of give a basic uh, description of what Pan-Americanism is, uh, the kind of tensions that existed within it, which you uh, very skillfully explore throughout the book, and how its meaning uh, came to change over time uh, through these international uh, legal networks and the conversations and disputes that, that occurred. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very central question, uh, I suppose, and, and this is part of the largest history of, of, of that the book covers. Uh, Pan American was a, was central to the history of U.S. Latin American foreign relations uh, uh, in the early 20th century, and of course uh, can be considered as a, a, a central language in the foundations of the inter-American system as such in its foundational period. Uh, what was Pan American is um, one can define Pan Americanism in its early stages, that is to say, in the 1890s as uh, a policy or uh, a U.S. policy of economic, political, cultural, legal cooperation towards Latin America. So it was a U.S.-led uh, policy. The, the, the term was invented in the United States in the early, in the, in the early 1880s, 1880s, yes. And, um, and, um, but of course, uh, Pan-Americanism uh, also was uh, and can be considered, as, as, as David Shane suggests, as the friendly face of, of U.S. hegemony in, in, in Latin America. Pan-Americanism had this um, a, a central U.S.-led uh, feature in, this, uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 19th century, 
But uh, um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the beginning of the 20th century, and especially after Elio Root visited uh, the South American countries uh, in the context of the Third Pan-American Conference in Rio de Janeiro in, in, in 1906, Pan-Americanists began to be redefined and began to be redefined by a series of important uh, diplomats and legal scholars from uh, Latin America, essentially Joaquim Nabucco, uh, a diplomat uh, who, who worked at the... At the at the um, U.S. Um, um, Brazilian Embassy in the United States and had a strong relationship with uh, a close relationship, a friendship actually with Elio Root, contributed to redefine Pan-Americanism along the lines of a, of a multilateral language of inter-American relations. And essentially, many Pan-Americanist uh, lawyers, diplomats, and possibly the most important one, was Alejandro Álvarez, a central character in, in the book, uh, who was a Chilean prominent international lawyer, a legal advisor of the Chilean foreign minister of foreign affairs, and also a very prominent uh, jurist who studied in Paris and funded the Institute, uh, the Institut International in Paris, and, and a very influential figure who also uh, became then uh, later um, a judge of the International Court of Justice. And Alejandro Álvarez began to use, and this, uh, there are previous precedents of this in, 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 in Joaquin Nabucco, but essentially uh, uh, what these uh, international lawyers, and we can also include Luis Maria Drago from Argentina, Foreign Ministry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, also uh, associated to the Drago Doctrine, these uh, juries began to de- redefine uh, traditional principles of foreign policy, such as the Monroe Doctrine, in, uh, uh, in a language that sought to redefine uh, U.S. principles as a as hemispheric common language of international law. And uh, essentially what Alvarez uh, did was uh, to use uh, a, a U.S. language such as the Monroe Doctrine and redefine this language along the lines of a common American international law. Uh, this, of course, implied a redefinition of the Monroe Doctrine, which was essentially a, a unilateral principle as a hemispheric uh, a principle of international law. And this principle could contribute not just to uh, um, protect the Americas from European interventions, but also um, moderate U.S. interventions in Latin America by developing a, a language of solidarity and cooperation between the United States and Latin America. After the visit of Elie Root, uh, Alejandro Álvarez and a series of international lawyers from South America contributed to redefine uh, Pan-Americanism as a common language that also could contribute to uh, moderate U.S. intervention. And actually, there were different positions also within the United States uh, and essentially, Elie Root was the one who uh, clearly engaged with these uh, visions, and that's why he renovated Pan-Americanism along the lines of these redefinitions that were being advanced by Latin American uh, uh, lawyers and diplomats. So there is a, a, an important shift after uh, uh, 1906, and also especially after uh, the Latin American delegations gained their seats in the Second Peace Conference in, two, in 1907, and Elio Root played a central role in, the, in, this, in this regard. And in, and in this sense, after uh, the, the Second Peace Conference, 
uh, we see uh, a, 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 an important engagement of uh, international lawyers and diplomats uh, from Latin America. And we can also include Rui Barbosa here as well uh, with the language of Pan-Americanism and, um, and, and, and American international law. That is to say, a common language of international law for the Americas. And the Monroe Doctrine and Pan-Americanism played a central role in redefining a common language of diplomacy and international law in the Americas. That's a, a very helpful overview. Um, thank you. And I, I wanted to just focus a little bit more on something you said, though, about the so you, you very uh, you trace the kind of shifts in this legal language or this legal discourse of Pan-Americanism mm -hmm. uh, very, very effectively throughout the book. And one thing that is a, a persistent thing that you look at is the change, the, the ethnocentric nature mm -hmm. of a lot of this discourse. Um, so I was wondering, maybe you could, if we focus first on these two figures that you spend a lot of time, or let's say three figures, you have James Brown Scott, the American lawyer, Alejandro Alvarez, and later on in the book, you're looking at the Cuban lawyer, Antonio Bustavante. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of ethno ethnocentric assumptions uh, that some of these figures had in their conceptualization of hemispheric law. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, point. Uh, I suppose uh, uh, what uh, uh, the, the most of the, the important members of the American Institute. Uh, and and it's, it's worth mentioning that Antonio Sanchez de Bustamante, uh, once the American Institute of International Law, which was funded by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and I think this is worth mentioning, and it was originally based in Washington. And the, the, there was a shift when uh, um, uh, Antonio Sanchez de Bustamante, uh, in, 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 in close alliance with, with James Van Scott, uh, they decided to had um, the, the chair of, of, the, of the American Institute in Cuba. Uh, and when they decide to uh, relocate the American Institute in Cuba, um, there were certain shifts that led eventually to displace Alejandro Alvarez as Secretary General of the American Institute of International Law. And I think uh, this is traced in the book, and I, I think that this, this is an important episode uh, in, 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 in the shifts of, of, of these ethnocentric visions that began to have more influence within the American Institute. The American Institute was funded by uh, Alejandro Alvarez and James Brown Scott along the lines of a common vision of American international law. But uh, uh, within the, the American Institute, uh, there was a, a shared conception which was very much a, a, a US-led conception of, 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 of uh, international law in the sense that uh, certain U.S.-led principles of U.S. hegemony and U.S. leadership when co were considered as a part of a common language of American international law, and this uh, created a sort of a common uh, a grammatic language of international law. All the international lawyers within the American Institute Bustamante, Alvarez, and Scott shared the idea that the moral doctrine was central to the development of American international law, Pan-American solidarity, hemispheric priest. But an essential question, uh, which was a shared vision within the American Institute, is none of the members of the American Institute questioned the Platt Amendment, which gave the United States uh, the, the right to intervene on a regular basis, 
uh, uh, as 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 uh, as problematic for uh, Latin American countries, and 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 there were also certain common uh, formal uh, um, uh, shared uh, visions about uh, a certain kind of uh, um, um, common ground of. Uh, um, formal adherence to certain principles such as sovereign equality among states, the condemnation of violent and arbitrary interventions, and also uh, which were formal principles that uh, most of the international lawyers within the American Eastern shared, but there was also uh, a condescending attitude with with the idea that there was uh, all these international lawyers uh, sort of believe that the, there should be a right to protect the lives and properties of foreigners located abroad, and these had implications for U.S. companies and, and U.S. citizens located in, in, in Latin American countries. So there was a, a common set of shared visions in, according to which a U.S. language uh, was central and was key to the American Institute. This, the endocentric visions uh, emerged when uh, uh, James Rauskor uh, created these strong alliances with, with Bustamante when the institute was relocated in Cuba. And essentially, uh, uh, this uh, contributed to um, uh, create a code of international law that uh, was that had to be based on uh, the technocratic uh, um, recommendation of a selected elite. Uh, rather than a code that should be discussed by all the diplomats of the Western Hemisphere. And this innocentric vision of, of, the, of the U.S. Uh, language of international law as, having, as, as, as a model for uh, the code of international law for the Americas as a whole was, came uh, from Scott, but it also created some sort of uh, alliances among uh, important members of the American Institute. And Bustamante engaged with the idea that the code of international law had to be based on the expertise of a technocratic uh, legal elite, uh, and it shouldn't be discussed as a political uh, um, a code that would represent the different traditions of legal languages of the Americas. And the discussion that emerged uh, within the, the, the American Institute of International Law had to do with these two uh, confronted visions. Uh, on the one hand, we had Alvarez, who believed that it was possible to combine, to combine uh, a Latin American language of international law and U.S. language into a common Pan-American language. This was very much a Hegelian vision, but still was a multilateral vision according to which um, uh, we... La- when creating a code, it was important to take into account very seriously the legal traditions of all the countries of Latin America. Some certain uh, international lawyers push even further about these, these questions, such as Carlos Savera uh, Lamas, as uh, a character mentioned in the book in the, in the final chapter, the Argentine Foreign Minister of Foreign Affairs. But the United States, Charles Evan Hughes, Secretary of State, and James Brown Scott, uh, had the vision that the code uh, should be based on uh, um, the expertise and should be elaborated by a selected uh, selected elite, and this uh, is what 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 led to the uh, second conference of Rio Janeiro, uh, a codification meeting of 1927, and in this context, uh, uh, the 
Alejandro Álvarez prepared the series of projects and uh, within uh, a legal elite uh, of well, a large group of jurists, but in, in the context of a, a, a conference of legal experts, uh, then, uh, there was um, an important uh, lawyer within the, uh, was part of the American Institute who believed that uh, the principle of non-intervention was essential for creating the code and pushed for the code to, be, to include a very strong uh, uh, vision about non-intervention. Uh, this was uh, the, the treasurer of the American Institute, um, uh, Louis Anderson, Alvis Anderson pushed for this uh, for this uh, code uh, to to include the, an absolute uh, notion of non-intervention. And when uh, the, the the code was discussed afterwards in the context, let's put of a, let's say of a, of a political conference in the in the in the Pan American Conference of of, of of Havana in a year later in 1928, uh, there was a very uh, confrontational debate in this conference between um, Charles Evan Hughes uh, um, and, and Victor Manuel Maurtua, who was uh, an important member of the American Institute, also uh, very well connected with Scott and, 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 and Antonio Bustamante, and they uh, pushed to include the prince, uh, to allow to include uh, the, uh, certain uh, scope for uh, maintaining uh, the right to intervene and U.S. right to, 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 in, to interventions uh, as part of this uh, code of American international law, and this uh, led eventually to a confrontation between an, an innocentric but also an elitist conservative vision that considered that the code had to be built on uh, the basis of the expertise of a democratic elite. And um, uh, in this sense, it's, it's interesting, and it's worth mentioning that Bustamante and Scott. Uh, had as a model the Lieber Code that was implemented in the United States uh, uh, in, the, in the context of the Civil War. Uh, and in this sense, the idea was that uh, it, it was the mission of a, a series of experts to create a code for, for a whole hemisphere. And this, of course, uh, created a great deal of resistance among uh, various groups of Latin American diplomats uh, at Havana. And at Havana, because of this confrontation between an ethnocentric vision, I would say also an, a very a radical anti-interventionist vision and a more solidarist vision, such as the one defended by Alvarez, uh, created a great deal of confrontation between uh, US-led uh, ideas of codification and, and creating an American international law very much rooted on the US model and, and a technocratic elite and, and, and a series of visions that put forward the idea that it was important to uh, politicize international law and to include a pluralist approach that would include uh, the different codes, traditions, and visions of the different countries of Latin America as part of a common uh, code that should be, uh, for that reason, uh, discuss politically and not as a technocratic uh, recommendation of a, a spec, uh, of, a, of, a, of a small group of, of experts. On, on this point of, of you know, the tension between pluralism and anti-pluralism, legal pluralism and anti-pluralism, I, I was wondering, you, you, you cite a number of works in the book uh, coming out of the, the tradition of uh, law in the European empire, uh, books mm -hmm. like The Gentle Civilizer of Nations. And I'm 
I'm, I'm trying to understand. I know in, in recent uh, your more recent work in an article, you are trying to position Latin America as kind of the center of some of these developments in international law. When mm. I think many people, uh, there, there's been a tradition, an unfortunate tradition, the scholarship to concentrate on Europe, uh, have a Eurocentric conception of this. But in what ways were Latin American legal elites influenced by this civilizing discourse that had been a, a very central feature of a lot of European uh, international law uh, and European empire? How were they kind of adapting some of that or perhaps pushing back against this civilizational discourse or adapting it for their own circumstances? What kind of connection do you see there? Do you see a great deal of... Um, uh, a kind of a shared language of, of civilizing discourse between Latin American legal elites and, and European uh, legal elites? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question because uh, what I try to emphasize in this article, and I'm glad that you mentioned it because uh, that article was meant to be part of, the, of, the, of my doctoral thesis, and that is to say the book uh, that is, uh, emerged from it, uh, and, um, and decided not to include this because this uh, group of pluralist lawyers that I, 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 I include as part of the characters of this article, published at the Leiden Journal of International Law very recently, uh, they were uh, outside the, 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 the habitus and the establishment of the, of the, of the if, if, let's put it, the, the, the main establishment of, of the legal elites uh, that were the dominant uh, network of, of international lawyers within the Western Hemisphere. And, and, and um, those who, who push for this anti-imperialist legal vision were at the margins of this, uh, legal, of this legal network that I describe in the book, the American Institute of International Law. Within the legal elites, uh, uh, we find that the, principle, the standard of civilization was extremely important. And that's why I think uh, most of the international lawyers who engaged with the, the American Institute and were and deeply engaged, were uh, deeply attached to the American Institute, did not confront uh, uh, the, the, the idea or the civilizing mission and the, uh, the, the, the principle of the standard of civilization uh, to the extent that they adopt, uh, and this is the case of Alvarez, that they uh, agree to adopt uh, a US-led language to create a common idea of American international law. And I think that's, uh, that uh, is revealing of the extent to which uh, uh, um, a, a sort of uh, um, language of, of, of U.S. leadership uh, uh, was essential for building um, um, a civilizing mission or integrating a, um, a common vision or sort of trying to legitimize a common vision of American international law in the Western Hemisphere by redefining uh, a principle that was originally a U.S. unilateral principle. Uh, the fact that uh, um, Alvarez never confronted the Platt Amendment and was especially condescending with, with it uh, is also telling of the extent to which these international uh, lawyers within the American Institute uh, believed that it was uh, important to create uh, um, um, uh, some sort of civilizing mission according to which the leadership of the United States would contribute to uh, uh, create the grounds for 
advancing uh, the principles of civilization uh, um, and extending and pan-Americanizing the standard of civilization across uh, Latin America. Uh, in that sense, uh, we, we, we can consider uh, very much this as a, as a civilizing mission. Alejandro Álvarez, who's a central character, of course, he sought to moderate by, by advancing this uh, civilizing mission, he sought to moderate, create grounds for moderating U.S. intervention. But at the same time, he considered that U.S. hegemony was beneficial because it would create the grounds for uh, civilizing all the Americas according to uh, the language that the United States was creating. This also emerged out when uh, the beginning of the First World War, when uh, the principle, when the United States uh, became neutral, also Latin American countries began to engage with neutrality and South American countries uh, uh, engaged with, 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 the, with, the, with the, the, the leadership, with, with sort of following the leadership of the United States in uh, being neutral with at, at the beginning, of course, of the First World War, and Alejandro Álvarez saw that as 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 as, as a, a, the, the idea that the United States was a leader of neutral countries, peaceful countries, countries that would advance the legal settlements of international dispute, that would create grounds for uh, principles of solidarity in opposition to European uh, countries that were. Uh, Leading to a, to a, to this to this war that were also having these imperial confrontations that would sort out disputes uh, through the balance of power. Uh, the Americas were the leaders, but the United States should create the path as a leader, that, uh, so that the Latin American countries should follow that path. And Alejandro Alves was very explicit about this in his book uh, published uh, uh, in the context of the, of the First World War. The, uh, le, um, le, le international, the uh, le, le international del avenir, el derecho internacional del porvenir, the international law of the future. In that book, he was explicit of the fact that Latin American countries should should follow the path of the United States. In that sense, also the idea that U.S. legal values and U.S. legal traditions were the model. There was an idea that there was part, and this would create grounds for a civilizing. Uh, uh, mission for the Americas and sharing the idea that the United States was a model was uh, uh, implied a, a strong uh, belief in, 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 in the importance of creating some sort of civilizing mission along the lines of, along the lines of U.S. legal uh, and political values, traditions and institutions. Of course, uh, the, 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 the U.S. Constitution and the Federal model of the United States and the U.S. Declaration of, of Independence, especially for, for for Scott, was a model for uh, creating also uh, uh, the, 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 the declaration that he created on the Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Nations. That was the first declaration of the American Institute of International. So, in that sense, uh, the idea that the United States was a model it was much stronger in, in Scott, but it was still very strong. Uh, in, in an international lawyer who had a more solidarist approach such as Alvarez. And, 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 and I think that this civilizing mission, in this civilizing mission in the Western Hemisphere, a U.S. model was, was key to these international lawyers, um, especially uh, Alvarez and, and Victor Manuel Murtua from, from Peru and, and San, Antonio Sanchez Bustamante from Cuba. 
You've uh, mentioned the Platt Amendment uh, a couple of times. And of course, the, the Platt Amendment is the series of articles appended to the Cuban Constitution that gave the U.S. these sweeping powers to, to intervene uh, mm. for, on a, for a number of reasons. And I, I was kind of just struck by how, how central the Platt Amendment is to a lot of the legal precedent and thinking uh, of, these, of these lawyers. But I wanted, to, I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that. But more specifically, Cuba, it plays a very important role, as you kind of already alluded to, yeah. in the construction of American uh, international law. And you have figures like Antonio Sanchez de Bustavante, who are you know firm allies of of lawyers like Scott. But I was wondering, I mean, but on other levels, Cuba is also central. It is a physical, uh, it is a physical center. Uh, it's the place where the one of the journals is is published. So Cuba, on a number of levels, uh, is is a really key part of this story, which. Um, you know, I'm someone who studies Cuba, and this was very interesting to me to see how central Cuba was in, in, in Pan-Americanism. But could you explain a bit more about why Cuba was was so important for the U.S. to, to, to be able to sort of uh, try to gain some kind of legitimacy or, or, or uh, within Latin American law? Why were they so focused on on making Cuba the the place where so many of these important events and uh, publications uh, were published, and yeah, yeah, that, that's a good, that's a very good question. And I think that here comes the geopolitical dimension of the book. Um, I I try to to emphasize that, uh, and, and and this all, of course emerges in the conclusions of the book. But I try to emphasize in the book the extent to which uh, international lawyers uh, and especially Scott had a geopolitical mindset. Uh, he believed that Cuba would be the center of the international law of the future. So I, at some point in the book, I suggest that whereas Alvarez believed that some sort of imaginary Pan-American uh, location would uh, uh, be the ideal place, so the sky, if you like, or a Hegelian vision of idealized uh, uh, terrain where uh, all these lawyers would should 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 create a, a, a new island where they they they, they would discuss uh, in a transnational uh, sphere, which is very much ideal uh, or idealized in Alvarez. But for Scott, it was clear that that island should be Cuba, and he believed that Cuba uh, should be uh, the new. Well, actually, there were plans, and, and I mentioned this in the book. There were clear plans to create a, a, a palace of justice, such as the one at the Hague, to, uh, to create an, a palace of justice uh, and also a, an inter-American court of justice in Cuba. I mean, these projects uh, uh, finally uh, um, uh, were, I mean, were not effective, and uh, especially because uh, the, the, actually the, the, the um, um, Murray Butler. Um, uh, the, the president of the Kani Endowment for International Peace did uh, believe that it was not worth investing on uh, creating a new palace of justice in Cuba uh, in the context of the late uh, uh, 1920s when there was a critical context in Cuba, of course, and it was problematic. But it also was problematic because uh, 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 Murray Butler was more conscious about the fact that uh, centralizing in Cuba uh, a, a very U.S.-led vision of international law would be 
problematic and would be confronted by a series of South American and, and international lawyers uh, across Latin America. Murray Butler was more conscious about the fact that anti-imperialist ideologies were emerging in Latin American countries. Scott sort of uh, uh, overlooked these visions. He was part of a legal elite and to some extent, uh, 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 I mean, was completely, uh, could, could live a happy life ignoring and overlooking this, this uh, uh, resistance that uh, a US-led vision uh, and creating uh, um, a center of international law in Cuba uh, will be problematic and will be resisted by a great number of diplomats uh, in, in Latin America and especially uh, if it was funded by, by uh, exclusively by the United States. So uh, uh, it, it, this uh, led to a discussion within the, uh, the, the Carnegie Endowment that funded uh, uh, the American Institute of International Law. But still this geopolitical vision that Cuba uh, could be the proper place for the international law of the future uh, was strong in Scott. And also, of course, uh, Bustamante very much engaged with these projects, and so did uh, uh, Victor Manuel Murtua, who was a close al ally with uh, the government of Leguía in, in Peru at the moment. And there was a kind of the, um, a tri um, a triangle of alliance in the context of the Havana Conference between uh, Peru, uh, Cuba, and the United States. And, and, but of course, uh, these, these projects of creating, um, uh, uh, were very much pushed by these three figures, uh, of creating a, um, um, a palace of justice and, and creating a big center of, of international law, uh, of the American Institute funded by the Carnegie and, and, and in Cuba, in, 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 in Havana, it was a, was a project that was key uh, at, at the moment, uh, but uh, of course the political circumstances uh, were not appropriate and, and uh, well, Scott and uh, Victor Manuel Murtua had to confront and at some point when the situation was so critical, they were forced to recognize that it was impossible in Cuba because student uh, uh, protests uh, and, and a critical situation in Cuba led them to recognize that it was a, a impossible to create a center of international law. But the idea was of uh, creating a center of international law, but it was very much shaped by the United States. And of course, in this context, uh, at some point, uh, Scott suggested to Bustamante that he should be the president of the American Institute, and Bustamante declined uh, the offer because he believed that the best president should the best possible president of the institute, even though if it, if it were to be, be located in, in, in Havana, uh, should we always be uh, uh, Scott? Uh, but these projects were uh, important and, and had to do with ethnocentric vision of Cuba as a center of the U.S. Uh, imperial imagination. And we have to take into account also that Scott um, uh, was a, a soldier at the, and the, in the context of the Spanish, uh, U.S. Uh, American uh, uh, Spanish War in, in 1898, and he had a in, in his mindset, Cuba was some sort uh, of, of 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 friend, a friendly country of the United States, and he believed that Cuba was to some extent an extension of the United States in, in the legal mindset of, of Scott, and that's why. Uh, uh, locating in Cuba a center of international law was so central 
in his, his legal mindset. That uh, provides a, a great segue to my next question, which is kind of also about Cuba, but but kind of gets us to a later part of your book when we're looking at the good neighbor uh, policy era. And mm-hmm. if I if I have my history correct, it's in 1933, the good neighbor policy is, in, is announced in FDR's inaugural. And then we have the mm-hmm. Cuban revolution of 1933, which I guess provides a, a very early test mm-hmm. case to see if the U.S. would able be able to actually deliver on this, this rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, as you, you kind of trace, I guess, to an extent, the decline of the AIL uh, with this shift to what you call inter-American, this inter-American period, uh, yeah. uh, at least a, certainly a rhetorical shift. But uh, uh, this is actually my question is that, well, first, maybe just explain what inter-Americanism was, but more so, I'd, I'd like to know if you think that to what extent was it a rhetorical shift? Uh, versus an actual kind of reality that actually affected the fundamental nature of U.S. Uh, Latin American relations. I think that's a that's a good question. Um, I think, uh, of course, uh, these uh, uh, what I was t- just mentioning before the idea that um, it was possible to create uh, a legal center of international law in Cuba. Um, uh, I mean, fail as a project in part because the push for um, my reading of the emergence of inter-American multilateralism uh, and and, and the good neighbor uh, had to do to some extent with the push uh, that we see uh, in in 1930, 1933 of uh, a series of Latin American international lawyers, but also economists in, 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 in Mexico and, and, and diplomats in, in, in Argentina. Essentially, Carlos Avera Lamas is a key figure in, in, this, in this regard. And so there is a, a sort of uh, idea that um, the, the, the Pan-American movement, as it emerged on the basis of a, a U.S.-led vision, uh, should be redefined along the lines of um, a, a, a multilateral uh, language, and the and the, pre- the push of Latin Americans for adopting the principle of non-intervention uh, was key to this story. Um, and and I, I sort of think, I mean, I, I try to suggest in the book that a Latin American agency, in of course, I mean, then we can when there's a, we, can, we can discuss further whether that had implications for um, for a, a decline of U.S. hegemony. That's another discussion. But there is a shift, and this shift was pushed by a series of diplomats from South America, but also from Mexico. They were pushing for a long time for the for for, for the principle of not for adopting the principle of non-intervention. One of, many of these figures had to do with those who were, as I as already mentioned outside of the network of the American Institute and who were politicizing the principle of non-intervention uh, that I, I, I cover in my article in Leiden Journal, Isidro Favela, Carlos Avera Lamas, uh, and another, um, um, uh, uh, Puig, who was also a diplomat at the Montevideo Conference in 1933. Uh, there was a push for uh, uh, adopting an inter-American system that would allow more agency to Latin American countries. And the push for non-intervention played also an, a, central, a central role. And the fact that 
Carlos Saavedra Lamas uh, made that move uh, that allowed him to uh, put forward the anti-war treaty uh, that he put forward in 1933 uh, uh, outside of the Pan-American uh, system, and, and he put it as a South American anti-war treaty, and then he uh, 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 moved forward the treaty into the League of Nations, and when the Latin, all the American countries meet at Montevideo, he had the anti-war treaty as a fait accompli. So this implied that um, there was some sort of, of, of more um, less hierarchical equilibrium of forces between the United States, at least in South American countries, in alliance with Mexico, I would say. So there is a shift in, in, in and, and, and the United States uh, felt it was, of course, more beneficial uh, to uh, um, at least engage with these um, ideas of non-intervention. And this would imply uh, creating some sort of more cooperative uh, principles that also this uh, allowed uh, for the Pan-American movement to be to began to be redefined as inter-Americanism. So we see the shift in language from Pan-Americanism to inter-Americanism in this context. And I think it has to do with, with this, this push of uh, the anti-imperialists. Uh, anti-imperialists that were outside the, the, this, the Pan-American movement, but also uh, contributed to politicize uh, the, the debates about intervention and non-intervention. And I think uh, when these discussions about intervention, which essentially were <laughs> confined to an uh, elite of jurists, began to, to spread out across the Americas among diplomats, but also among political parties. Uh, we have the APRA in Peru, um, uh, the, the effects of the Mexican Revolution, of course, had to do with, with this, uh, the advancement of anti-imperialist visions. I think this, uh, this political, this politicization of international law, this politicization of the principle of non-intervention contributed uh, uh, for um, creating, of making of, in, of the international law debate a, a broader public debate of the Americas that had more political implications. And I think this uh, contributed, uh, or at least prompted the United States to move towards uh, the, the good neighbor policy. So I see the good neighbor policy also as, as a reaction to a, a, a strong push from Latin American countries. Uh, when we look at the Montevideo Conference in 1933, it is clear that uh, there was a push of Carlos Avera Lamas, Puig, also the influence of, of Isidro Favela, uh, that I mentioned, who was, Churis, who was a legal advisor of the foreign minister for many, many years, and was uh, also the diplomat of, of the Mexican Revolution uh, in the context of Carranza. Uh, Carranza was president in, in Mexico and also contributed to the reform of, of the constitution in Mexico. Well, these figures played a central role, I think, in uh, creating the grounds and prompting the United States uh, uh, to... to uh, have a, a commitment with the principle of non-intervention. And, and I think it's worth mentioning that after the good neighbor policy, we see a decline of anti-imperialist visions. All these international lawyers, political thinkers who were anti-imperialist and, and the anti-imperialist ideologies began to decline. And, and I think it had to do with the fact that the United States committed with the principle of non-intervention. And that sort of contributed to the that then we have, an, of course, a reemergence of anti-imperialist visions 
in the 50s and 60s with the Cuban Revolution, of course. But in the 30s and until the, the, the Second World War, we see uh, a, a sort of uh, golden period of inter-American cooperation with certain degree of confrontation, of course. But uh, I think uh, in this regard, Latin American agency and the South American Treaty advanced by Carlos Avera Lamas, uh, and who was essentially a diplomat, uh, but also these anti-imperialist visions who contributed to politicize international law, both at the Havana Conference in 1928, but also at Montevideo. And this uh, eventually contributed uh, to push the United States uh, to derogate uh, the Plata Amendment. And this is something that we also see uh, in, the, in, the, in the Montevideo Conference and as, as a push of uh, Latin American countries, especially South American countries and, and, and Mexico. Great. Um, as we kind of come to our last uh, few minutes here, I want to sort of end, uh, try to end where you end the book, uh, which is, you know, in, in your conclusion, you have a section in which you're considering trying to relate um, uh, Pan-Americanism and the changes to the rise of, kind of globalism or global society. And of course, this is a, a topic that is right now a kind of a burgeoning fields, uh, the work on global governance by people like Mark Mazower tracing the intellectual history or um, Susan Peterson tracing in the history of the League of Nations. But uh, I was wondering, what is your, how do you see um, these earlier uh, legal interactions uh, between the U.S. and Latin America as relating to so, so-called global society or global governance that is typically framed as something that emerges in the following the end of World War II? Well, I, I suppose that in the book, uh, and this is an important question, I'm glad that you asked this, um, uh, I suppose in the book I try to suggest that uh, the, the experiments and the laboratory of, of what the United States did in Latin America uh, with the creation of this uh, uh, series of, um, if you like, um, um, advancing disciplinary knowledge about certain fields in different disciplines uh, about Latin America, in geography, in international law, in political science, in history, contributed to create a Pan-American uh, vision and, 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 and ideas uh, connecting disciplinary knowledge with the creation of some sort of hemispheric governance. And I think this is key to the, this was key to the early Pan-American movement, but also contributed to uh, shape uh, the global visions that emerged in the United States, essentially in the in the early 1940s, uh, um, and 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 we see um, uh, this turn from, uh, if you like, uh, some scholars suggest that it's a turn from isolation to to globalism or interventionism, or a turn from. But we can, I, I think, it's more fair to consider this shift as a shift from. Hemispherism into globalism. And I think the experiments that the United States did uh, with the Pan American movement, with early ideas of uh, hemispheric governance in the fields of international law, as I said, also uh, disciplinary knowledge was key to the, the Pan American movement, disciplinary knowledge of, of Latin America, I think. And the, the fact that many of the early figures of the foundation of history, well, this is shown by Ricardo Salvatore's book, Disciplinary Knowledge. Um, you see, we can see uh, 
that the United States uh, developed uh, hemispheric knowledge, expert knowledge, and there was a connection between uh, those who work for the State Department and those who work for, for these, uh, the, 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 the emerging fields of history, geography, and international law. And I think uh, the expertise of building this um, expert knowledge on, on international law contributed to uh, create ideas of global governance, having the United States as a as, as model, uh, but, uh, of course, uh, bringing into the picture the, the Euro-Asian question, if you like, and, and developing uh, more ambitious ideas of global governance, uh, but still, and I think uh, the, 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 the work of Martin Masower shows, the, shows this very clearly, uh, the United States was a, a strong model for creating the, the UN. Uh, so, uh, but uh, what I think um, uh, Mark Masower's recent book does not show is the fact that Pan American has played a central role in creating at least a laboratory for, um, for creating at least ideas of hemispheric governments. Of course, what we see uh, in 1945 is that, uh, and even in, in, the, in the early 40s, is that some of the Latin American, Pan-American figures such as Alvarez would continue to predicate inter-Americanism, but inter-Americanism wouldn't be a priority for the United States after the Second World War when building the UN. But So these, these uh, figures were, so, to some extent, out of fashion. But still even though they were out of fashion and some of the, uh, who, those who predicate inter-Americanists and emissaries and would continue to do so in, after the Second World War would, 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 would be uh, soundless, of course. But still, uh, the previous experiment of what the United States did was essential for bringing uh, into life the UN. And, and, and I think the fact that, uh, of course, I, I don't talk uh, very much in, in this book about the Central American Court of Justice, but that was also a key uh, experiment that the United States did in Central America. And, and, and they, well, of course, creating this American Institute and a series of experiments in the legal field were essential for creating um, a model of, of global governance where, of course, uh, international law was not opposed to the geopolitical imagination that emerged uh, in 1945. And also, that's why I try to emphasize in the book, and I want to bring, uh, sort of bring, go back to something I already mentioned, is that the legalist vision, that usually a liberal internationalist legal vision such as that of Scott, had a strong connection with the geopolitical imagination. And we, can, we shouldn't be... We shouldn't see these uh, these visions as opposed and 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 and, and uh, uh, contradictory, but uh, they were joined together in these in the twenties and and in the plans of Scott and 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 bringing into the picture the connections between a liberal international legal mindset and geopolitical more strategic imagination was present was present in these hemispheric designs that Scott had in mind in Cuba, and I think. Also, uh, uh, because of the, of the creation of, a, of the foundation of international relations as a discipline, there was a turn, or there was an idea that uh, geo- geopolitical and strategic visions of the Cold War com- were completely separate from legal visions. But there were strong connections. And I think uh, the, the laboratory of what happened in Latin America can bring us a picture of the connections between legal mindset and geopolitical strategies. And I think 
Latin America was a big experiment. And that's why uh, when we see uh, the turn to globalism, we should uh, take into account also these connections, the legal mindset and the geop geopolitical strategies that usually uh, tend, to be, to, tend to be seen as uh, contradictory and, and, and opposed to, to one another. As a, as a final question, um, I just wanted to see if you could speak, uh, say a few words about what you're working on currently, uh, if you're working on another book project or, or perhaps an article you're working on, just what, what, uh, yeah, what are you currently working on? Well, thank you. I mean, uh, the, the, my current research project uh, explores the origins of human rights and, 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 and ideas and institutions in the Americas in the context of the early Cold War period, from the transformation of Pan American Union into OES uh, to the early 70s. Uh, and this project focuses on uh, primarily on the 60s and the connections actually between human rights and geopolitics, something I already mentioned right, uh, right now, uh, just a minute ago. And, uh, and also, uh, the I co this project concentrates on the formation of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and the impact of the Cuban Revolution on the OAS in, 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 in the early stages of the OAS. I just recently been awarded a Fulbright Fellowship um, and spent three months in Washington, D.C. at the Elliott School of International Affairs and George Washington University, conducting research uh, on the OAS archives and, and, and the library and return uh, from the U.S. Uh, in February 2020, just a, a, a couple of months ago, and returned to Buenos Aires just before the, the, the beginning of the corona uh, crisis uh, pandemic. Uh, so this project stems from my from the hidden history of from my PhD project. I just completed um, uh, the archival work, and, and I, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to publish a, a book monograph in the next few years, I hope, in the meantime, I'm working on, a, on an article uh, that, uh, on ba basically exploring the origins of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. Uh, I gave a preliminary advance of this article uh, in a talk that I gave at Columbia University recently while I was at the U.S. and also in a talk I gave last year at Cambridge in 2019. And I'm also completing an edited volume on Pan-Americanism. I'm co-editing this edited volume on Pan-Americanism, uh, tentatively entitled Pan-Americanism, the Structuring of Inter-American Relations. And just finally, just want to mention that I'm, well, I'm currently a researcher at CONICET. It's the Argentine Research Council here in Argentina. And I've been running, uh, along with a, with a series of colleagues in Argentina here, we run a, a workshop in, in, on global history. And we're running this uh, for, for five years. Uh, and the, where the workshop in global history is based in, at the Universidad de San Andres, where I'm a researcher and, and professor uh, at the moment. Great. Well, Dr. Sharfi, it's really been a, a pleasure to speak with you today. I enjoyed our discussion and I uh, just wanted to thank you again for, for talking. Well, thank you very much for the invitation again.